Well, joyful greetings. I love you guys. Something you should know about me, I'm a nerd, right? Thank you. I thought that was Justin laughing for a second. Uh, that's my brother-in-law. He agrees. Uh, but as a nerd, uh, I love, and as a Christian nerd, I love theology, right? That's why I got this passage. And the reason why I love theology is because theology, it's the study of God, right? But good theology, I believe, is so much more than just the study of God in the way you study biology or chemistry or any other subject. But good theology is to intimately know who God is, to know him as if I know you or my wife or my best friend. It's that kind of study. It's that kind of knowing. And so I come up here loving theology, loving knowing God, and I pray that we would too as well. As we see this passage and its deep theology, we would embrace its truth. Because I strongly believe that we as a church, we need to cling to good theology, especially in in an age, in a culture, in a society where feelings are being treated like fact where how I feel God is or how I feel God to be is treated and valued as much as what God truly is in the Bible. The passage that I have the blessing of preaching about today, it's a challenging passage. It deals with election. Uh, How many of you guys have heard of election? Not the presidential one, but God's election. Anyone? Okay, a few people. Well, Wilson, uh, he's also covering Romans 9, and he's going to be covering the part of God's sovereignty and how that interplays with our free will, our free choice. So this frees me up to focus on no matter, on, on this, right? Instead of how the sovereignty and free will interplay, I want to focus on this. No matter how, how God may choose to save, we can acknowledge the truth that God is God, that God is sovereign, that God is good, and that God is wise. Thus, no matter what actions he does, no matter what decisions he makes, we can trust in him despite our fickle feelings or limited understanding. That's what I want to get to today. And I know I've talked to many of us, or many of you guys, and Even from personal experience, there's times, right? Have you ever had a moment where you know this truth in your head, but there's this disconnect to what you feel in your heart? One of my prayers that I've had for for this, for all of you, is that even though there may be this disconnect of what you know God to be like and what you feel God is, that as you hear truth being preached, as you hear the word of God, despite how you would feel, you would trust and lean into the truth, right? So that's my prayer. So if you turn your Bibles, we're going to be in Romans chapter 9. And I'm going to be reading verses 6 to 13. 
this first passage shows us how God is sovereign. But not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Last week, Pastor Ethan, he preached on Romans 1 to 5, and Paul starts off this chapter, right? He, he's talking about how he has this deep love for his fellow Jews. And he's heartbroken because he sees how so many of them are lost. So many of them aren't saved, that so many of them are going to hell. And he's filled with this crazy, holy anguish. Right? He, he's, he comes to this point where he, he says he's willing to go to hell on their behalf in order that they might be saved. That's the depth of God's love for his fellow people. Right? And I thought about it, and I thought about how much I love the church, and I love you guys. And Pastor Ethan, he didn't answer whether or not he would go to hell for you guys. I will. I wouldn't, right? If I'm perfectly honest, like, I wouldn't go to hell for you guys. I love you guys. For Katie? Katie, Even for Katie, I'm sorry. I I love you, Katie, but... No, not even my mom. Because it's, it's hell, right? Like, from what I understand about it, I, I would not want to, right? I have thought about, okay, how far would I go? I would, prob- I would give up my life in this life for you guys, you know? Like, if, if I could sacrifice my life for you guys to be saved, I'd do that, right? I'd take a bullet for Katie. If I had to sacrifice a family member, I'd gladly give up Justin. <laughs> he would want to, But it's just crazy, right, how much Paul loves these people. But it's even crazier how much Jesus loves us. Because he's the one that actually took on hell for us. And so this is how Paul is is opening. He's talking about how much he loves these people. And then he tells them these truths. That they don't know that Jesus can save them from their sins. And instead, what they're doing is that they're believing that because they're being born as Jews, that's going to save them. And so what we see in, in this verse, in these passages, is in Romans 9, Paul, he's predicting the response of his fellow Jews because he knows them so well. He knows how they think, how they feel. And so he's anticipating all their arguments. He's predicting everything they're going to say, and he responds preemptively. And in verses 6 to 13, 
Paul says, look, you're going to say it's about being born as a Jew, but it's not about that. It's not about the flesh. It's about God, by his grace, choosing who he's going to save. But they're children of the miraculous, the miraculous promise, which is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. But after this claim, the Jews would argue that if what Paul is saying is right, right, if, if many of them aren't saved because of their Jewish background, then God our God has failed because God made a promise. He made a promise that he would save his people and the Jews are supposed to be his people. And so if God doesn't save all the Jews, then this God is a failure. Then this God is a God that does not keep his promises, does not keep his word, cannot be trusted. In other words, this is a God that sucks. And I wonder, right, How many of us at one time in our lives have struggled with this? How many times we have thought and felt that God has failed us, that God hasn't kept his promise, that God hasn't kept his word? Paul, he knows the hearts of men, and he answers this by saying that God has not failed And he goes into history, and he shows God's sovereign plan. He makes this throwback, right, to Isaac and Ishmael, as well as Jacob and Esau, in order to show that even before the world was created, God planned to save people, not because of good works or merits or who they were born of, but by his sovereign choice, by his election. And so even though, so what's the implications of this? Think about this. Even though the Jews, right, the people of God felt, even though to them it felt and it seemed so strongly that God was failing to save his people, in reality, the truth of the matter is that God had not failed and is not failing to this day. God is saving his people And in the same way, I know, I know that many of you might feel God has failed you or is still failing you to this day. And it may seem that way so strongly, but I assure you that our God never fails. He keeps his word and his promises. This is the God that we have. And all the promises in Romans 8 that we we already learned about, right? The beautiful promises in Romans 8 are only possible because of his power revealed in Romans 9. Because if God were not a sovereign God, then I I couldn't trust him to protect me or save me. It's like this. I mentioned earlier that I love my wife. I absolutely adore her. I've promised you know, when I, when I made a vow to her, and even after that, I promised to protect her and keep her safe over and over again. Uh, the other day, I was at a benefit dinner for my school, and a bunch of my kids were, like, coming up and just, like, saying, Mr. Fisher, you are so lucky to have such a beautiful girl fall in love with you. And often I say, yes, that's how I know God exists, because there's miracles like that that happen. 
And so I, I know I'm blessed, and I know that I'm so lucky, right, to have a girl like her, right? And so I want to protect her, and I promise to protect her. But one day, imagine, right? Imagine if one day a man barges into our house. I don't know why, but just imagine he does, and he has a shotgun, and he, and he fires at Katie, right? And you know, this is my moment to shine. This is my moment to prove that I love her. And so heroically, I dive in front of her. I take in the bullets, right? Like, my, like blood spatters. <laughs> I fall into Katie's lap like a hero with my lightning fast reflexes. And in her arms, I die. But nothing's going to stop that man from harming Katie after I die in her arms. Or if she's rock climbing in Joshua Tree, right? Uh, I remember watching her like rock climbing and I'm like, if she like slips or if her, her sweaty hands like dissolve the rocks and she falls to her death, <laughs> she does. Um, and, she <laughs> and she falls to her death, Right? I can't stop that. Right? I can't, like, even if I like, run and try to catch her, we're both going to die at that po at moment, right? Or if she's on her deathbed, dying from an incurable disease, what can I do to protect her then? Nothing. Why? It's because I'm weak. I am horribly weak. There are so many things I'm not in control of. No matter how much I love Katie, there are so many promises I can't fulfill because there are so many things outside of my control. And so it's not just enough for us to learn week after week that God is a God of love, which is very popular and very awesome and encompasses many things. But if God were only a God of love, then we would still have many things to fear if he wasn't sovereign, if he wasn't in control of everything. But when we do declare that God is sovereign, we declare him to be in complete control over everything, which means that if he says that he's going to do something, what in the world is going to stop him? Seriously, what's going to stop God from doing what he promises? He is going to do it. I can trust in the promises of Romans 8 when he says that all things work for the good of those who love him. I can trust that nothing, nothing on this earth or in the universe, neither Satan or my own stupidity or any force imaginable can separate me from him and his love. I can trust the Psalms when they say that God is my shepherd. What am I going to fear? Or that God is not withholding any good from me because there's nothing preventing him from that, nothing stopping him from that. Or Hebrews, when it says that the Lord will never, ever leave us nor forsake us. There's no distance, no sin, no power that can stop God and his promises from being fulfilled. We can trust in that sovereign God. And so unlike the Jews that think that God has failed, we trust 
in God because we know that he will never fail. And that's where the security of our salvation lies. It's not on us, right? If our salvation was on us, man, we would be in so much trouble, right? So much fear, right? If we had to like keep track of points and make sure we had a handle on things. But when, it's, when our salvation is in him, we can trust that he will save us. And if we can trust God in the biggest thing, our salvation, then we can trust in God in the small things, in money, in relationships, in work, in the future. It doesn't mean that things will always go the way we want, but we can trust in God that things will happen the way we need. But Paul knows that even though he's shown God to be sovereign, that the sinful heart continues to question God. And so again, Paul anticipates and he responds. In verse 14 to 18, we see that God is not just sovereign, but God is good. It says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardened whomever he wills. What does this mean? The Jews here, their reply, right, to, to, to Paul would be, so what if God is sovereign? So what if he's complete control of everything? If God does things this way, if this is what he allows in my life, if this is how he acts, then he can't be a good God. He must be unjust. And I I think about this, right? Like, yes, if God loves me, that's awesome. And yes, if God is sovereign, that's amazing. But what if God were not good? I think about if a powerful but evil dictator loved me, and I really wanted a puppy, right? (laughs) And because he loves me, right, this evil dictator loves me, he's gonna get, and he's all, and he's very powerful, he's gonna get me a puppy, right? But what if, but because he's evil, the way he gets me a puppy is by stealing it from some little boy, beating up his family, right, in order to get me this puppy, right? It would be difficult for me to trust and praise that kind of dictator. If I knew that, yes, he may love me, right? Even though he's evil and he may be really powerful, but if he weren't good, how could I trust him? How could I trust his actions? And again, how many of us have felt the same way? We acknowledge that God is God, that he's in control of our lives, but we doubt his goodness. 
we doubt what he's doing. And it's important that we talk about this because in my 10 years of seriously serving in ministry, you know what I found most predominant in people falling away from the faith is that they almost always have this wrong view of God. It's often based on wrong expectations on what they feel God ought to be like more than what the Bible actually says. So their faith and their worship, it centers around their own version of God. They, they impose their own idea of goodness and justice upon this God. But upon learning that God is different from them, from, their, from the God that they've created in their mind, they turn away. And most of the time, it's in bitterness and it's in resentment. Just like how the Jews are. Our God is not a domesticated dog that we can control and put on a leash. He is an untamable lion, but he's a good lion. And so, is our God unjust if he chooses to have mercy or compassion on some and not others? How does Paul answer this question? He simply says, look, it is impossible absolutely impossible for our God to be unjust, to do anything unjust. Luther says it like this, why then should man complain that God acts unjustly when this is impossible? Or could it be ever possible that God is not God? No. If we say, right, if we say that God cannot be fair, and be a God who elects or acts in this way or that way in our lives. All this shows is that we have this faulty understanding of God and that our view of God is far too small. Paul addresses this faulty thinking in these next verses, in verses 19 to 21, where we see God is not only sovereign or good, but he's also incredibly, infinitely wise. He says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? A faulty view of God leads to accusations of God. And what does this look like? What does it look like for mold to accuse its molder? for clay to speak back against its potter, for Lego blocks to rebel against the Lego master builder, for humans to accuse God. In the story of Job, that's exactly what we see. Job accuses God after all these bad things happen in his life. He accuses God of being unjust and incompetent of running the universe. And so what happens? In this story, God shows up and he responds to Job personally. 
And I know that in times of struggle, right, where we, we, we question God ourselves, we would just love that, wouldn't we? For God just to show up and finally answer our questions, to finally respond to us. But man, it, it doesn't go like Job plans, right? God, he comes before Job and he tells him, look, Job, dress for action like a man. In some translations, it says, in some translations, it says, get your loins ready, right? Because what's about to take place, it's going to be quite the sight. It's going to be painful but good, right? God answers Job. See, because God's going to answer Job, but he's not going to answer his question. Instead, God He's not going to answer his question of why all these bad things are happening to him. Instead, he takes Job on this humbling journey. He begins to question Job. And these questions, one by one, systematically reveal Job's limitations as a man. He, asks, he, he, he questions him. He says, Job, where were you when I created the earth? What, what were you doing then? Surely you know how all this works. You know the trillions of stars in the sky? What's all their names? Can you tell me the name of that constellation? Can you tell me how that was formed or, that how, or how that galaxy came to be? Answer me, Job. Come on, oh wise one, oh great, smart scholar of the greats. How about this? Have you ever controlled the sunrise? Have you ever commanded the weather? You see what God is doing. God is showing Job and us how God has his mind on all these cosmic, huge details that we cannot even begin to fathom. And God doesn't stop there, right? you think that would be enough, but he doesn't relent. He keeps on laying on the blows. And he, and he goes into these micro details. He says, how about this, Job? Think about the deers. Are, are any of them being born right now? Or the lions? Are any lions hunting? Do you see that? Do you know what they're eating? Do you know where they are? What about the deepest parts of the ocean? What are the creatures like down there? How many animals live there? What about the birds flying in the air? What do they see? And on and on and on, God goes. And this is God's way of communicating to Job and to us that we are limited both in time and in scope and in understanding. We can't see all that is in play. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We may question God, we may call him unjust, unfair, unloving, and so forth. But Paul, in Romans 9, he puts us in our place. Is God unjust? By no means. 
Who are you? Who are you, O limited man, to question an infinite God? There's a lot going on that we have to admit that we don't know. And we often feel, right? We often feel like we know how things ought to be, but we don't feel correctly. And even if we know what's going on, we don't understand how it fits into the grand cosmos of things, how it fits in all of history. We are limited. And here's the crazy part. Most of the time, we're unaware of this reality. We don't think about how limited we are because everything in our culture talks about how we should affirm how we feel and validate our own self-importance. But we got to realize that God is wiser than us. We can't be deceived by our feelings. So what may look like injustice from our point of view needs to be seen in an infinitely larger context. Job and us were in no position to make any valid accusations against God. And we can rejoice. We can rejoice, though, that God is wise because we won't have, to, we won't have the answer to everything. We won't know why everything happens the way they, they, they do. We won't know why the child dies in the womb or why the relationship ends the way it does or why I can't get the job that I want or why the depression and loneliness won't leave me. Why good things, why bad things happen to good people. Why I'm going through this suffering. We won't have those answers. But we do have this answer. The answer that God is wise. And we're invited to trust in this infinite wisdom whenever we counter suffering, even the darkest kind. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't be honest, right? God wants us to be honest with how we feel. But he invites us in our, in our pain, in our hurt, in our grief, and in our doubt to bring it to him and to trust in this God that we see, the God of Romans 9, the God that is sovereign, good, and wise. So why is this important? Because when life gets rough, because it's going to get rough, right? that's just reality of this sinful world that we live in. Life is going to get rough. What is going to help us most? It's not someone that's going to validate all your emotions. It's not affirmation from people through likes or snaps or words. It's not temporal pleasures like sex or food or money or job satisfaction. All those stuff are good. But the only thing that will be your solid rock joy, no matter the storm or season, is the knowledge, the intimate knowledge of God, that he does what he pleases 
and what he pleases is good for his glory and our deepest, truest joy. This is why I love theology. This is why I love knowing more about who my God is. I can't settle for just one aspect of God because there's so much more of him. And I pray that we as a church would be hungry for the truth of who God is and see, see more of him because this, this is barely scratching the surface of an infinite God. And I pray, I pray we would hunger for that. We would point each other, not to ourselves, but to this God. This God that is sovereign, good, and wise. This is what will sustain us to the very end. Let's pray. God, you are amazing. You're amazing. You're amazing. And in this limited amount of time, I know that my words fall short in fully captivating your glory. That's why week after week, we have so much to talk about. And that's why in heaven, we're going to be spending all of eternity worshiping you and finding out more and more about you. And it's not going to grow boring or old. That's a crazy thing, Lord. Like, I think about all these things in this world, no matter how great they are, eventually the, most be- the, the beautiful sunrises just grow old, and even great friends can grow boring and mundane talking to them and learning about them. But you, and you alone, are inexhaustible in joy, in excitement of getting to know. And now, as we've heard that you are a God that is more than just a loving God, but you are a God that is in complete control of our lives, you're a God that is good to us, even though we don't deserve it, by your grace, you show us goodness. And by your infiniteness, you're wise. And we can trust in you. We could worship you. We could lean upon you. Even when things seem silent and confusing and everything's just going crazy, Lord. You are the anchor in the storm. You are our refuge. You are our strength. You are our God. And we love you. Because you first and infinitely more loved us. In your sweet, sweet Jesus' name we pray. Amen.